Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. In this episode, a woman's diary reveals the fresh and formidable voice of a midwife from over a century ago who was determined to make a difference to the lives and welfare of mothers and their babies. If you listened to episode 4 of this podcast on the letters and life of Susanna Middleton from 1805, you may remember that I talked about how dangerous pregnancy and childbirth was in the first decade of the 19th century. In Susanna's time, around one in every 200 pregnancies in Britain led to the death of the mother. When you consider that in these pre-contraception days, many women would have multiple, even tens of pregnancies, this becomes a very sobering statistic. And believe it or not, 100 years later, in the first decade of the 20th century, that rate of death remained unchanged. There had been advances in medical knowledge and the assistance, particularly the pain relief, given to childbearing women in the intervening century. But solutions that would drastically cut the fatality rate from the three leading causes of death in childbirth still lay years in the future. The risk of fatal hemorrhaging, eclampsia convulsions, and above all, purpural fever, an infection of the reproductive system, remained as real and terrifying for pregnant women at the dawn of the 20th century as they had since time immemorial. In fact, certain developments in medical practice actually increased the death rate among mothers in the 19th century. For instance, as more women had their babies in crowded hospitals rather than at home, so they became more exposed to the risk of transmissible infection. And the over-enthusiasm of some doctors to apply the latest scientific theories to intervene in childbirth, for instance using forceps, was also liable to increase the risk of infection and hemorrhaging. The women who ran the gauntlet of delivering in hospitals or at the hands of zealous male doctors and they were exclusively male, were, for the most part, urban and better off. The vast majority of poor women and rural women depended, as mothers had done since the dawn of time, on local female midwives. These midwives gained their knowledge through experience rather than formal training. As such, they were increasingly sidelined and undermined as the male medical profession resented what they saw as an encroachment by women into their sphere, and as richer families increasingly trusted in the qualifications of male doctors even if they had limited practical experience of delivering babies. Yet although women were not allowed to earn medical qualifications, gradually female midwives began pushing back against their marginalisation. The Florence Nightingale Training School for Nurses, set up in 1860, included midwifery training, as did some other hospitals. One of the women to take advantage of these limited training opportunities was a certain Alice Gregory. Alice was born in 1867, and although middle-class herself, her clergyman father's work 
meant she grew up at close quarters with the disease-ridden slums of Victorian East London. She was therefore aware that most poorer women were attended in labour by untrained local midwives, who may be highly experienced and knowledgeable, but who also may be the exact opposite. There simply was no regulation, and there were far too few trained midwives. As Alice Gregory dwelt on this problem, a landmark law was passed in England and Wales. In 1902, it was made illegal for a woman to practice as a midwife without certification. This Midwives Act also established a Central Midwives Board, which would regulate midwife training courses, exams, issue those all-important certificates, and keep a register of all certified midwives. This was a key step towards regulating the profession and so improving the survival chances of mothers and their babies. As a member of the Midwives Institute, which had campaigned for this law, Alice Gregory was no doubt elated. But the law itself did not provide the means to train new midwives, so Alice Gregory decided to take matters into her own hands and establish a midwife training hospital. After searching across the country for a suitable building, she eventually alighted on two adjoined houses in Woolwich, which she had converted into the new Home for Mothers and Babies. Woolwich is in south-east London, home for centuries to the Royal Arsenal, a giant armaments and ammunitions factory. By the early 20th century, the Royal Arsenal employed tens of thousands of people, and the surrounding area was home to a large working-class population. It was, in that respect, a prime location for establishing a new maternity hospital. The hospital would take in patients from the local area, provide outpatient services, and, crucially, train up new midwives who could then be sent forth to establish their own practices across the country. Alice Gregory, who was appointed Honorary Secretary of the hospital, did not toil alone. She was aided by two old and trusted friends and fellow midwives. These were Lelia Parnell, who was appointed matron, and Maud Cashmore, who was appointed senior sister. Outside assistance came from Canon Charles Escreet, the rector of Woolwich, who helped Alice find the premises. On the day the hospital opened, the 11th of May, 1905, Alice Gregory began a diary. I discovered this diary at the London Metropolitan Archives and was instantly transported, as through her short, clipped sentences and forthright views, it so vividly brings these midwives and their patients to life. On that first day, Alice wrote, After two and a half years battling, we have arrived so far. Six beds instead of seventy, but still a start, and much to be thankful for, notably that Lelia is able to come too, which hardly seemed likely three months back. We have only been in the house three nights. The workmen left yesterday, and will be back tomorrow. Nurse Cashmore, Nurse Walter, and two untried maids on the ground. The hospital was starting out small, or at least smaller than Alice ambitioned, with a small staff, and the battling was by no means over. On the 11th of May, Alice and her team were still scrambling, not just to ready the hospital for their first patients, but also to prepare the building for a grand opening ceremony. A morning of anguish, wrath and envy between nurses and the sales ladies over the best flowers. 
Canon Escreet to arrange proceedings, Mr. Morgan's gardener to arrange flower pots, consignments of clothes, baskets, and instrument cupboards. Chaos! Despite this chaos, by the afternoon, they were ready to welcome the well-wishers and their guest of honour, a daughter of the recently deceased Queen Victoria. Princess Christian at 3.30, soldiers of out, crowds of in, choir on stairs, Mr. Carey read service, father gave the blessing. Dr. Cullingworth made a beautiful speech and was charming altogether. General satisfaction over the furnishing, especially baby cots. Yet although the building was now formally opened, it was still not yet in full working order. The first weeks of Alice's diary reveal her to be a jack-of-all-trades, as she flits from task to task to straighten out the hospital, as she termed it. On May 16th, the hospital's telephone was established. On May 17th, she was making caps. On May 18th, she washed and hung pictures. Many days at the end of the month were devoted to installing a new Eagle Range cooker. Once delivered to the hospital, it took three days to actually get the range into the kitchen, though that was only the start of the challenge. On May 29th, Alice wrote, Champions Ranger moved and the Eagle finally substituted, as per contract. Men departed, leaving a pipe flooding the kitchen. Sister Cashmore and I spent the evening in smearing it with soap and strangling it with towel, after which it became worse, and at 10.30 we departed in search of a plumber the flood dealt with, the regular chores continued. Alice broke up firewood almost weekly. In June, she cleaned and arranged the linen room, polished the floor of the Hope Ward, and cleaned the dispensary. These manual tasks seemed to have appealed to Alice more than the responsibility of managing the hospital's accounts. The taxpayer-funded National Health Service was still over 40 years in the future. In 1905, the new home for mothers and babies depended for its survival on donations, fundraising and charging their patients a fee, calculated according to the patient's ability to pay. Although there were moments for celebration, at a tabletop sale in December they raised £14 for the hospital. Throughout the first year, the hospital was in a permanent state of just about getting by. No wonder then that Alice wrote on the 17th of May, attacked the account books with fear and trepidation. By the following January, the task was no less onerous. I, in great agitation over accounts, which have to be balanced since 1903. Balancing the books was evidently not a strength of the midwife team. On May 15, 1905, she recorded, took money to bank on bicycle. Much copper change. Arrived hot, dirty, degraded. I was appalled that our calculation was £13 out. £13 in 1905 equates to around £1,000 today, so rather a sizeable imbalance. In between chores and despite their small funds, the actual work of the hospital was getting underway. Throughout May, June and July, Alice's diary records a steady trickle of applicants for midwife training. Lelia had three aspirant pupils to see her, one impossible, read one such entry in June. Finally, by the end of July, two trainee midwives had been installed, both, as was the requirement, with nursing experience. Their names were Nurse Walter and Nurse Sissons. Nurse Sissons was destined to make regular appearances in Alice's diary. Within four days of her arrival, she was required to attend an outpatient with Alice. August 3rd. Ellen N. confined at home, screamed without stopping for one and a half hours. Poor Nurse Sissons in tears. 
Alice's sympathy for the overwhelmed Narcissans soon evaporated. On August 18th, she wrote, That ungrateful hound Narcissans talking of going because she does not like so much monthly nursing. Selfish thing, who could? She is on night duty now and has made no more confidences of the kind to Nurse Walter, who probably exaggerated them. A monthly nurse is a now defunct term for the nurse who would look after the mother and baby for the postpartum period, typically the first four to six weeks after the birth. Nurse Sisson's allocation to night duty proved to be only a short-lived remedy for her unhappiness. A little over a month later, she appears in Alice's diary again, in connection with a troubling incident. September 24th. Great upheaval over a man, imaginary or otherwise, who is by way of following the night nurse round from window to window without attempting to come in. Nurse Sissons called Cook to the rescue and was nearly in hysterics by breakfast time. Lelia and she went round to police station to give warning. September 25th. A very broken night for everyone, watching for Nurse Sissons' burglar. I nearly emptied my water jug on the head of two policemen who had come to investigate. None saw the burglar, but Nurse Sissons was again hysterical and declined to go on night duty tonight. Whether Nurse Sissons was ever induced to go back on night duty again, Alice does not record, but she evidently could not avoid her share of monthly nursing. On December 5th, Alice recorded, Nurse Sissons to my room at midnight to say her brain was getting addled with babies and she would have to ask to go home for a week. I said she could not possibly do so. One reason why Alice couldn't grant Nurse Sissons' requests for time away was that the hospital was desperately short-staffed. As early as July 10th, she wrote, with much underlining for emphasis, some depression, as we don't see, even if we do get more pupils, how they will have time to study or do anything but wash out the baby's mouths. For the first time we realise why so many monthly nurses are necessary in hospital. Alice's diaries are replete with records of calling in extra help. To Edith last, to beg her to come and char, Cook being in bed, she wrote in June. In August, telephoned for night nurse. In October, got special nurse through Miss Walker, profoundly ignorant. Regardless of their staff shortages, Alice may have regretted not giving Nurse Sissons a break. The day after their midnight meeting, Alice wrote, After arousing me with her folly, Nurse Sissons went down and fed Collier baby on something illegible instead of castor oil, then roused Sister Cashmore to rescue Collier baby. Poor little thing's mouth burnt, and we had to call in Dr. Stevenson in evening. Despite this mistake, two months later, in February 1906, both Nurse Walter and Nurse Sissons took their Central Midwives Board examinations. As Alice recorded, February 13th, Nurse Walter and Sissons passed the CMB exam, the former complimented by examiner. Despite passing her exam, this was the end of the road for Nurse Sissons' dalliance with midwifery. It was clearly not a profession to which she was suited. A week later, Alice noted, Nurse Sissons has gone home. Plans quite uncertain. Promising to write explanation of trying behaviour. May be written up a failure. Nurse Walter, however, had fulfilled Alice's hopes for the training hospital. Having passed her exam, she was ready to establish her own midwife practice. February 20th. Took Nurse Walter to prospect in North Woolwich with a view to starting her practice there. Interviewed Mrs. Carpenter in a corn chandler business, recommended by Canon Escrete. She offers two good rooms and her daughter as a nice companion. 
meals with the family, and a fried fish smell thrown in strong enough to stand a spoon upright in. Nurse Walter, much pleased. Alice and Walter were however told that the local hospital, the Jubilees, already served expectant mothers in the area, so there might be no need for a new midwife. The diary entry continued. Feared the Jubilees there took maternity cases. Thence to the Jubilees, who admitted, stiffly, that they did, but I wrung from them that they only had one midwife among twenty-two thousand, and went only to the very poor who could pay nothing, so we agreed it would not clash. Far from Walter's new practice being redundant, her and Alice's investigations revealed the desperate need for more trained midwives in poorer, crowded city areas. With Walter and Sissons now departed, and a third trainee expecting to pass her exams in April 1906, Alice now had capacity for three new trainees. In February, she wrote up her opinions of the new intake. Nurse Claydon, a thorough, good, hard-working little nurse from Poplar and Stepney. She is not bound to do district, but promises, if possible, to take a year or two at it. Nurse Wheeler, anxious and willing, abounding in the obvious had never apprehended the meaning or existence of antiseptics till she came here. Very slow and many breakages. Very nervous. Calls herself merchant class. Very pretentious. Nurse Hodgson. Quicker at work but worse at theory than Wheeler. Equally little conception of cleanliness. Working class. Alice's particularness in writing down the social class of her new nurses was striking. As her notes are so brief... I cannot judge what her opinion was about the fact that her new trainees were working class. Alice herself, like many of the women in the Midwives Institute, was middle class, and the newly recognised midwife profession was in some quarters regarded as a middle class occupation. In fact, one of the hospital's stated purposes was to promote the training of gentlewomen as district midwives. I'm personally rather pleased then to see that the trainee intake was in reality much more inclusive, in class terms, on the ground. The notes that nurses Wheeler and Hodgson were not familiar with antiseptics or cleanliness measures were more serious. The introduction of basic hygiene practices, including the radical suggestion that midwives, nurses and doctors should wash their hands in between attending to different patients, was a crucial innovation of the last half-century in reducing the rates of deadly infection. In fairness to Wheeler and Hodgson, though, by 1905, even some doctors were less than vigorously clean. In August, Alice observed a local doctor at work. August 3rd. Nursing case under Dr. Lynn. Revelations as to Woolwich doctor's practice. He gave Ergot, a painkiller, in second stage. Used no nail brush to thoroughly clean hands manually removed placenta five minutes after birth of child and assured me he always kept up with modern practices. Alice Gregory, who boasted many years' experience, tended to have little patience with the sense of superiority wielded by doctors. On June 15th she wrote, Dr McCall and Dr Roche to tea to see the home. Dr McCall showed us how to use pelvometer. She then added in brackets, We had done it quite right before. Local doctors feature regularly in the diary, as they were called in in cases of complications during birth or illnesses in the mothers or babies. These were not always happy or successful collaborations. In October 1905, Alice kept a record of the case of a mother named Edith. October 3rd. Poor Edith and labour all day and night. Slept in Nurse Walter's room and looked after E. 
October 4th. Edith's pain still every ten minutes, day and night. Slept as before. October 5th. Edith at last delivered 6.40pm. Chloroform and forceps. Dr. Hirsch, awful. Laceration and tied baby body causing bad harm to infant. Sat up with Edith all night. Pulse 120 and almost imperceptible at times. Gave saline. Edith and her baby gradually recovered. They were kept in the hospital for another two weeks, after which they departed for a new life in Nova Scotia. Two months later, Alice recorded her frustrations with the attendant doctor again. December 31st, tiresome case last night. One lobe of placenta and all membrane adherent retained. In other words, part of the placenta remained inside the mother after birth, which could have serious side effects, including heavy bleeding or infection. The diary continues, Sent for Dr. Hirsch, 10.30pm, and he sent partner Dr. Stewart, who twisted off a few shreds of membrane only and departed. I explored uterus and got away the lobe and membrane, leaving a very uneven surface. As someone with my own painful memories of an excruciating birth, I found some of Alice's notes on her patient's difficult reading. Please take this as a trigger warning for the next few minutes of this episode as we delve into some of the cases Alice recorded in her diary and that, for me, capture the timeless experiences of childbirth, the agony and the uncertainty, the tragedy and the joy. Many of the notes are brisk. For instance, June 13th, Mrs Hill in at 3.30 in strong labour. Large youth arrived at 4.48am. July 16th, Fetched away at the end of early church to Mrs. Collins. Back 2.30 and found they had just taken in Harrington with membranes ruptured. In other words, with waters broken. July 17th. Mrs. Harrington confined. Small, slightly premature baby. August 18th. Eight in babies and two out. September 4th. Mrs. White confined in the night. Florence A. at noon. Sir John Riddell to tea and see the home. Eight babies and nine mothers. Fearful scramble. November 24th. In and out patients arriving every minute. But amidst this revolving door of mostly anonymous women and babies, some cases drew Alice's particular attention. One such was Miss Davis, the only unmarried mother to feature in the diary. The hospital had been set up with the support of Canon Escrete, who it seems had objections to the hospital serving unmarried pregnant women. Alice, however, refused to bow to his wishes. June 19th, to Canoness greet to justify our policy with regard to unmarried girls. June 30th, Miss Davis confined during night. July 3rd, brisk day again with Miss Davis, Mrs. Fordham and Field. Very hot and everyone seedy. July 14th, some anxiety about Miss Davis who leaves us in three days and whose mother has not begun to make her clothes and is making arrangements for boarding her out, fears as to gentlemen lodgers, and for the baby's safety, I resolved to give notice to police. July 17th. Miss Davis went out, leaving the baby on her way home with a woman she had only just heard of. What became of the baby, barely two weeks old when given away, or of her mother, I do not know. These few lines capture the sad and uncertain fate women and children were so often condemned to by a hypocritical, patriarchal society. Miss Davis was a rare case for the hospital. 
Alice's anxiety was usually directed not to the safety of her patients after they were discharged, but their health when still under her care. Throughout the first year, many of the mothers displayed the telltale symptoms of potentially fatal birth complications, in particular, fevers, which could indicate infection. August 8th, Ellen N's temperature 101, great agitation 99.8 before bedtime. August 18th, the patients have had little temperatures 99 to 104, keeping us anxious, cause unknown. August 25th, Caroline B's temperature 103, telephone to Dr. Mellol, temperature afterwards 104.8. August 26th, Caroline's temperature down 100. August 27th, Caroline quite convalescent. And then, a year after the hospital opened, tragedy. May 1906, our first maternal death has occurred. Mrs. Barnes, eclampsia, five fits, forced labour by Dr. Stevenson, some peritonitis, death on third day. Poor Mrs. Barnes was unfortunate to suffer from eclampsia. The risk of death from eclampsia in the developed world is now slight, as women are monitored for preeclampsia throughout pregnancy and effective treatment for the fatal seizures that eclampsia causes have been around since the 1930s. But in 1906, there was no treatment once the seizures set in. Although a major killer, at the time, puerperal fever, caused by infection, appears to have accounted for more deaths in childbirth than eclampsia. It is a testimony to Alice and her team's rigorous hygiene standards that not a single patient had died of puerperal fever since the hospital opened. But Mrs. Barnes was not the only critically dangerous case. After recording her death, Alice's diary entry for the same day continued. Mrs. Barber confined in the middle of all this, placenta previa, which means the placenta was covering the cervix. Fairly good convalescence up to 14th day, then rigors and temperature 104 and 105, both legs swollen, attack of embolism and great misery all round. Special from Bart's Hospital and Nurse Claydon on the case, Dr. Rucker and Dr. Bellingham both attending. Mrs. Barber survived, but her serious condition and the death of Mrs. Barnes cast a pall over the first anniversary of the hospital. May 11th, 1906. Our first anniversary. 101 cases in, 50 out. Rather a joyful occasion, had it not been for Mrs. Barber. Nurse Walter to help while sister had half day in town. Tea in garden. We now have still Nurse Claydon and Nurse Hodgson and two new. It had been a busy, eventful and largely successful year. Two nurses had passed their CMB exams. Dozens of women had been supported by trained midwives in childbirth who otherwise might have laboured alone or played the lottery of having an experienced or inexperienced local woman attend them and the influence of the home for mothers and babies was already spreading beyond Woolwich. Throughout their first year, Alice's diary records a great deal of mutual sharing of information and methodology. May 17th, Lelia and I to town to see the British, the British lying in hospital in Holborn, London, and pick up hints. An unprepossessing institution with much green paint to hide dirt. May 22nd, Elle and I to see East End Mother's Home, copied their charts and casebooks. June 2nd, deputation from London Hospital to pick up hints for their new maternity wards, with much flattery. A year and a month after the hospital opened, Alice Gregory took a two-week holiday. 
It was her first break away from what was an intensive, round-the-clock, on-call job. Although she no doubt needed the time to rest and re-energise, Alice could not help but continue to dwell on the hospital and its future prospects in her diary. Just before leaving London, she had attended to the hospital's first annual meeting. She wrote, It went fairly well, but the profits lamentably small, and the fund daily shrinks, and instead of growing to seventy beds, it looks more like dropping back to six. What is to be will be. But one wonders, was it a mistake? Or was it always meant to be so small? Alice's ambitions remained frustrated for the time being, but would eventually be realised. In 1915, her home for mothers and babies amalgamated with the British Lying In Hospital, which she and Lelia had visited in May 1905. Following the amalgamation, a new, larger hospital building was built in Woolwich. This purpose-built hospital was opened with great fanfare by Queen Mary, wife of reigning George V, in 1922. A quick search online uncovers Pathé newsreel footage of this grand opening. The Queen emerges from her car to be saluted by a parade of soldiers and watched by a crowd of women and children. One by one, the Queen greets a line of military and civic dignitaries at the back of which group stand two women in nurses' uniforms. Could one of these be Alice Gregory? Later in the newsreel, the Queen is seen escorted by these two women through a door of the hospital. One of the women is smiling and looking delighted with the occasion. I have no way of identifying her, but if the smiling midwife is Alice Gregory, it would be very fitting to see her happy to have achieved her life's ambition. Alice Gregory continued to work at the hospital for another 20 years, finally retiring at the age of 77 in 1944. She died two years later. Alice Gregory was the woman I had never heard of until I discovered her diary, but she achieved a lot in her long career. She trained many midwives and in the process made a big contribution to the professionalisation of midwifery and she helped countless women deliver their babies into the world. Not the most renowned of lives now, but certainly an extraordinary one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I will be back with a brand new story from the archives on Thursday, 5th of May. Please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you like to listen so you don't miss it. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please do recommend it to your friends and family and leave a review or rating on your favourite podcast app. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. Alice Gregory's personal diary for the 11th of May 1905 to the 22nd of June 1906 is held at the London Metropolitan Archives. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>